Good evening, everyone. You hear me? Are people can hear me good? It is at the top of the hour, so it's time for us to get started into our study tonight. Good to be here. Good to be in the Word. Good to be back in this book, Study of Ecclesiastes, and learning what the preacher would say to us what he has seen and wants to share with us. We are generally trying as much as we can to stay on some form of a schedule that you've probably noticed at this point about a chapter a week. But if there are things about the last week or the weeks before that you really want us to make sure we talk about, please always feel comfortable to, to bring that into the conversation. We are not... Um, beholden to only stay in tonight's chapter and not talk about some things we've already gone over. With that said, we'll, we'll try to study a big portion tonight in chapter four. <clears throat> Last week, we were in chapter three and got a little introduction of stylistically some of the things the preacher is about to do and share with us. A little bit in chapter three where the preacher will say, I saw this or I observed this, or I've noticed these things. Kind of tell us what he's seen, maybe in more poetic language, maybe just directly, and then give his opinions on that at times. Not always, but kind of tell us, here's what I'm seeing under the sun or under the heavens. Those expressions have shown up a lot so far. They will continue to. Uh, and of course, we'll see that again right here in chapter four, verse one. Then I returned, or again I saw, all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both, that's the living who are still alive and the dead who have died. Better than both of them is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So we are in the midst of kind of our, our roller coaster emotional ride here with the preacher or with Solomon as he's walking us through. Um, a little bit, I think at the end of chapter three, we, we ended a little bit on, on a bit of a, a higher note, I saw there's nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work, for that's his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So kind of saying that it's, it's good when you work and you reap the blessings of that work for today, that's good and that is a blessing and it's right to be comforted by that and to enjoy that. And we read that and kind of coming out of a from dust to dust section earlier in the chapter and we're feeling pretty good. In chapter four, we are kind of falling off a cliff again a little bit here. And that, so then I looked and I saw all the oppressions and I saw all of these people oppressed and it was people in power that were doing it to, him, to them and there's no one to comfort them. In fact, it's really just better if you've never been born. It's so bad here under the sun. Like the dead are lucky because they're not being oppressed anymore. But you know what would be even better? if you just never were. And he's, he states this to us, right, in these first three verses. This is a terrible circumstance, a reality that he is observing 
and seeing. So what do you believe is the point here? Why, why are we talking about this? Why does a preacher say, I, I saw this and I, I see what's happening and, and you need to know this about this life under the sun, these things I'm seeing. What is the point to this? I don't think the point is just to make us feel very sad, though it might, yeah. Thanks, sort of going back to like we discussed last week, um, you know, the idea of under the sun is, is, you know, at least from my understanding of it, is, is life without God. And so, you know, the, these things that he's talking about here is they have no hope they, and nobody to, to go to is, is that, that person without God, they have no hope. They have nobody to, to take care of them. They have nobody to defend them and provide for them without God. Yeah, well said. So really tying it back to that expression that we spent a little more time on last, last week where we kind of introduced the concept of more in depth under the sun and what that means. And that's, that's key in this part. He's saying, I saw all this oppression done under the sun. And so we talk about what does that mean under the sun? We talked about the physical realm, a realm without God, not in that he, he has no part in it, but this is not where he is bound to like we are bound to. And, and there are physical things of this realm that might allure us or that impact our lives. So, yeah, great point focusing on the under the sun piece of that. Janita. Uh, this is commonplace. It happens all the time. We see it today that when people have the ability to make choices, then this can be one of them. Do you want to, to go further and just tell me? I mean, it's... Expound, if you would. We see evil today. We see the powerful that take advantage. Um, well, the rich take advantage of the poor. Those in power take advantage of those that have no power. So this is a cycle. It's in every generation. So we all have to deal with this. So what he says is relevant to us. Thank you, and th thanks for, for giving that. You definitely said it well the first time, so don't, don't think I was trying to be like, say it better, not at all. <laughs> I just wanted even more, because it was really good. So I wanted more. Thank you. Yeah, so may, may kind of bringing the concept more to kind of a chapter three concept as well, as the preacher is telling us, Here's how the world is. There's this time will exist, and then this one comes, and then this one will come back, and this will come, and the, these things are cyclical, or there's a season for these things. And in large part, we don't get to determine it's a time to sow now, and it's a time to read. These things, many times, we experience the seasons that are, and we, we work through them as we can. And Janita pointing out that this is also one of those things. This will happen today. You know, Solomon's not just saying here, man, it's really bad right now. This is just a very odd time in human history. This is just a really terrible time to be alive. And in a few thousand years, you'll be really happy you weren't alive here because this won't be going on anymore. I mean, he doesn't, it, he is giving it that kind of, this is how it works under the sun. Not just, here's what's happening right now, but this is the way being under the sun operates to a degree. This is not a question I gave you, but I'm curious in some cases, this is puzzling, right? Because you have who we believe to be Solomon, right? We've established the incredible, almost overwhelming evidence that's who's written this book. Who is Solomon? 
Like, who, who is he when he is writing this book? Like, what is his title? He's the king, right? So you have the king kind of looking out at the world, probably his kingdom. I doubt he's kind of on like a foreign studies program where he's over in, he's in Aram right now. And he's like, ah, it's really terrible over here. I can't wait to get back to, he's looking around at his life, at his kingdom. And he's saying, wow, there's a lot of oppression here. There's a lot of people in power treating people horribly and there's no one to comfort them. I'm like, well, that's interesting because I feel like you are the king and we might assume you could, you could probably do something about this, right? And I don't know that Solomon would, would say he's powerless to do it, but I wonder if, the, if this tells us anything about the ability to legislate evil out of society. You know, here we have an incredibly wise, godly from big parts of his life that we know, worship focused for large portions of his life that we know, person, king, and he's saying, there's a lot of oppression here and there's not much that can be done about it. Now, I imagine when cases were brought before Solomon, we can read accounts where people would bring cases to Solomon and they would try to, you know, someone is on one side arguing against justice. You know, they want injustice. They want something wrong to occur and he's using his wisdom to judge righteously and correctly. So he's not abdicating in all aspects and yet he's accepting to a degree that there's not even anything he can do to eradicate this as the king no, there's no checks and balance in his day either. Like if he decides to do something, a decree, like that's what happens back then. And I just think it's really interesting that he is still establishing this is not something under the sun man can solve. Maybe I'll say that. We can help the symptoms. We can participate in, in bringing comfort where we can to oppressed individuals. But can we legislate this? Can we, through better laws, and can we force people to stop being bad and just do what's right? And all the laws say be better and be good people. This is not even something Solomon is able to do. And he recognizes this even inside his own kingdom. And I, I think that's interesting. And, there, and he will talk more at other times. He'll really focus later in the book on kings and how kings abuse their power and they make bad choices, and they don't answer to anyone. And you're like, but you're, you're one of them. Like, or you're like, are you talking about like a, a king below you in the kingdom that you could? And yet, he, I think he rightly is saying this is life under the sun. Yeah, David, I got. If you think about the idea of you know, not the inability to eradicate all evil, all sin, all ungodliness from the world, but you look at the people of Israel, they had a law, a perfect law that sanctified them to be holy. And so even they, go back to your point, this is King Solomon, an anointed one of God who looks out uh, among the people who have a law that you know, would eliminate oppression, uh, but it's not, it's not eliminated. Yeah, well said, absolutely. Even even when those rules in large part exist, and even when they have a law, a divine law given to them, 
about how to treat the poor, about how to treat those who are needy. How well do they do? I don't have to turn this off. Okay, turn it off. Um, no more questions from the front. I don't know how to turn that off. I'm kidding. I figured it out. Yeah, John, just a sec. Someone better with the microphones coming to you. Uh, that about legislating evil out. You remember when uh, Josiah, he found the, uh, the book of the law and everything, discovered what was going on, and he made a covenant, it said, with the Lord that he was going to follow his commandments. And then it says, moreover, he made all who were present in Jerusalem to do the same thing. He made them do that, but as soon as he was dead, you know what happened. They went right back to the idolatrous ways. Yeah, absolutely. And there, and I don't mean to imply, and if I have, let me be clearer, I don't mean to imply that when as a society we say, hey, there's evil things happening and we'd like to make them illegal. We'd like to say, we don't do this as a society. This is not what we're about. We're against this. And to try to, to correct that with laws, especially in this country, we have incredible agency to do so, you know, in a republic and with our elected officials. And there's nothing wrong with participating in that. I think Psalm would just caution us against depending on that beyond recognizing that ultimately, you know, the word of God is what changes people's hearts and affects people to, to make ultimately good decisions. And yes, do what we can to create a, a better society, to, to remove oppression, to help those who need help. But depending on that model, I think we'd find would be vanity ultimately because we would not achieve it only that way. Yeah, here we go. Let's try it. Thinking about all the comments, <clears throat> that's exactly right. We can't legislate, but what we can do, we can each do our part. As parents in the home, we can teach our children, and that is the power that we have. Uh, we can be good citizens. We might even be a part, maybe, of the government and the things that God, the, the ideal establishment that God set in place for that reason, Romans 13. But there's still always going to be evil in the world, and it's going to happen, and we may not be able to do anything about it. You, you never know when someone's going to snap or someone's going to have some issue, and just in the, you know, in the news every day, you hear someone walked into this building, into this emergency room, and just started firing or whatever. We, we can't know what's going to happen, but we can do our best with, with our own, with our family, with people that we associate with. We can let our light shine. But even then, the, the world is still going to have evil, and we still need to be ready such that if the day comes when we breathe our last, we are ready to meet our maker. Because the world's going to carry on until the Lord returns. But we have to really be conscious to do our part. And it's a lot of work. It, we can't be complacent about it. Um, it's a struggle to keep our family together, to keep our kids on the right track to try to influence our neighbors and our friends for good, uh, to try to be a, 
a light and an influence to our brethren because we know they face the same things that we do every day. And so as I read Ecclesiastes, there is a point. As I read Ecclesiastes, I'm almost getting that sort of a thing from him because if this was the same Solomon that wrote Proverbs, look at what he said. My son, look at all these. He's warning about all these things, the same things that we go through every day with our children. Mm -hmm. And yet he looks out in the same world and says, it's going to be dangerous out there. And we, we do our best and that's all we can do. I'm done. Well said. <laughs> Thank you. That, yeah, Carrie's back here with a question. I'm sorry if you've been waving a long time. I was just going to make the comment that he continues to build a case uh, throughout these chapters, especially here, I guess you can make the point of don't put your trust and hope in the world because it's vanity, it's futility. And he's just making this case how the world is empty and vain and void. And I know we're not supposed to get to chapter 12, but it all comes full circle to the end of chapter 12 when you realize where you do put your hope and you, you recognize there's something beyond this world. Absolutely. Yes, he is. Um, who, who's familiar with the Socratic method? We, we know what the Socratic method, Socrates went around, asked people a bunch of questions and made them really angry. They just kept asking questions. And basically, like the Socratic method is, you know, asking questions, testing those questions, asking questions. But what if, what if I said, what's the Socratic purpose to that? Like, why are you asking all these questions, Socrates? Why is everyone mad at you? And, at, you know, like, what is the method of your teaching? And, and a big part of Socrates, whether you believe him to be a real individual or invention of Plato, he models this teaching method, right, that lets people come to the truth on their own rather than telling them, this is how it is. Socrates, in those writings from Plato, he will ask questions and he'll ask this question and be like, okay, you answer that, so what about this? So then what does that lead to? Guiding people to discover truth kind of on their own rather than just saying, I'm actually a really smart philosopher. Here's, here's how it is. Um, but he's not unique in that, right? Look at Jesus. Jesus often taught in ways that would allow people to come to the truth, people that were looking for it, and people that weren't interested in it, they wouldn't, they wouldn't find it. He even talks about teaching in parables as that there's a reason for that, that those, some people will see it, some people won't see it. And you are, st you are starting to get a little bit of that kind of in Ecclesiastes, because we will reach a point Yes, well, he will really just directly be like, the whole point of this is that under the sun or under the heaven is the wrong place to be looking. But he's not saying that yet. He's just saying, well, I was looking over here under the heavens at this, and it was vanity. And I was looking over here under the sun, and it was really terrible. And then I observed this taking place under the sun as if that the reader at some point will start to wonder, I wonder if you're looking in the wrong place, Solomon. You keep finding all these issues, all these vain things. 
But he hasn't said it yet, but already by chapter 4, as Carrie said, it's starting to become apparent. It's not just the things he's finding. It is this place that he is looking that seems to be incapable so far to be providing the answer to that first question, what can man gain under the sun? What can, how can man benefit? What can man find in his toil under the sun? So I appreciate that comment because, yeah, already by chapter 4, we're starting to get the picture I'm seeing the theme here, and the theme is this place seems to be providing the wrong thing. Yeah, Ryan. The uh, one of the best commentaries I think on this particular paragraph is found in chapter five, verse eight. Chapter five, verse eight says, "If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent taking away of justice and righteousness in a province, marvel not at the matter, for one higher than the high regardeth." And there are higher than they. So that's certainly an extra additional point to be made to. Absolutely. To this, so. Appreciate that. The comment, we're, we're kind of on our first question, which is great, but I want to just ask it'd be better if you had never been born. How's that strike you? That when he asserts it's so bad here, if you could have chosen, you should have picked not being born, essentially. It is better for all those that were never born. And when you read that, I mean, what, what, are, your, what are your thoughts? Just reading that, reading a, a spiritual inspired person asserting that fact. Are there, are there others in scripture that you remember saying things similar to that, that, that you can recall? Okay, we've got Elijah, absolutely Elijah. First uh, Kings chapter 19, he just prayed, like, take my life now, so at least Jezebel won't kill me, I think is the context. Be better if you do it, better you, God, than them, because it'll be terrible if they do it. Jonah, right? Jonah's mad about a plant, and so he wants to die. That is true. And mad about other things, too. Mad about, if you, thought, if you laughed at him being mad about a plant, he's mad that God is gracious. That's even worse. He's, he's mad that God has forgiven unforgivable people in his mind, right, in Jonah's estimation. And so he's, he's angry. And I, yeah, it's right for me to be angry, even to death, he says. Um, Jeremiah, one, well, not quite, a I wish I would die, but he, he contemplates wishing he had not been born, possibly, in Jeremiah chapter 20. Um, because they're looking at what's going on and... And there's context to all of these situations. They are not all the same, right? But they are, they are faced just with some overwhelming disappointment or sorrow, often about how the world is behaving and what's going on. You know, you look at Elijah in that context that he's just had this amazing contest and he's shown God's power to the people for the purpose of turning the hearts back to the Lord. And they like to kill all those prophets and then that's kind of it. Like the people don't wholesale return to God. He's on the run. Jezebel says, go get that guy. And people don't say, we won't. He is the prophet of the true God. He's a fugitive. And so it, it's, it's seeming like it didn't work. Like that, the, 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 that the turning you know, of hearts to God has failed. And God has explained to him it's not exactly as he would have supposed it was. But even Paul, if we're taking this this concept of life under the sun. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? 
19. If um, in this, this is not quite the same. If in this life only, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. That if if there's no resurrection, and we're believing all this stuff, we're like it's the saddest thing. Like our life is just so sad. Another similar concept that if this world is all there is, what is the point of even being here? Because there's nothing better coming after, so why would we even be here to just be sad all the time and be wrong about how the world works? And so it's a shocking thing to read a little bit, but it's not uncommon for spiritual people to say, yeah, if this world is all there is, that's not very much. And, it, and it's, it's not worth being here if that's all there is. Jonathan, yeah, right there in, in what you said, maybe you've said this already, but I think part of his purpose in saying some of these things is, and in maybe being a little bit shocking, so to speak, is in maybe disabusing people of the idea that in every way, life is good. There are ways in which life is good, plainly, um, and especially by the providence and care of God, but... If, if we do have the rose-colored glasses idea that everything in life is, is good, we can be content to live for this life and, and, and maybe not reach for the kinds of things he'd have us reach for. Yeah, that's well said. In the preacher, not defense, he's not needing to be defended here, but we're, we're marrying thoughts a little bit. He has already introduced, though, the concept to us that ultimately the wicked would be judged. In chapter 3, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and every work. And so, but again, he's kind of leaning outside the under the sun piece when he's making that comment. That may not come under the sun, that judgment, and God, God's righteous judgment may not take place under the heavens or under the sun. And so... This is a powerful thing to say, not as hopeless as it may sound, and we kind of look at the full context there. Um, kind of moving to the next, we're shifting thoughts a little bit here. What is disappointing about skillful work, or this work that he begins to talk about, toil, kind of verse four? Um, what's disappointing about that? that he, in verse, uh, chapter, I'm sorry, verse four forward. And can anyone want to verify the truth of this principle in their own life? I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. So why is this, what's disappointing about toil or this skillful work that some of the, um, is mentioned here? What's the problem with these things? We just ended chapter three. We thought work is good and I'll give you a reward and it's right to enjoy that reward. And so now we're challenged a little bit because now he's saying, actually, I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. So how are we reconciling the, these concepts? How, how do you, do we like work or not like at this point <laughs> of, the, of the book? What do, what do you think when you read this? Yes, John. Well, in, in this verse, rather than just taking joy in your work, he's just driven by envy. 
you know, the neighbors got better than I have. I can't keep up with the Joneses, and so I'm work, 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 trying to keep up with the Joneses. And if, if that's all motivates you, then you're kind of miserable. But back in chapter three, it was work. You could just uh, enjoy what you've accomplished without regard to anybody else. Just enjoy what you've done. Okay, yeah, so the the reward here has shifted because he, he, he commented that hard work is good because you get a profit from the Lord, you get some return. But remember, he's saying, this is what I've observed. So while that may be true, he's saying, but this is, that's not why anybody works. He said, well, that's not what I'm seeing. I see people working so hard, toiling, working to outdo one another, to have just a little bit more than the next person to because of envy of the neighbor or because he has so much more than me, I have to catch him, I have to surpass him. And he said, that's what I see. I mean, he says, all toil, all skill and work, a little um, embellishing language, I think. I don't think he would hold himself to literally every person working. But overwhelmingly, this is driving people to all their hard work. And if, if we had started the class, if I said, what percentage of people work really hard because of envy? I'm, I don't know that I would have said a high number. I, I always said probably some are out there doing that. But I always say I think a lot of people work to, to provide and a lot of people work to, and Solomon would disagree. I think he would say most people out there working really hard have, have a bad purpose, have the wrong reward in mind for this. I'm going to pause because I see David on the move. I was just going to say that um, that kind of work is always trying to acquire more. There's always <coughs> going to be um, that desire for more, and there's always going to be something bigger and better to desire after you get what you were going for initially, and it's another endless cycle of greed that is ultimately unfulfilling. Yeah, very well said. And I, maybe it's just the next chapter. He'll really speak to that. He who loves silver is not satisfied with silver. And like the thing that you love, as soon as you get it, like, I don't love this anymore. I love like gold now. And I got gold like, this is worthless. I need something better. And we, we do that ourselves, right? As we, we want to get this title at work. Like we're trying to reach this level. And then maybe we are blessed to get there. And then we kind of immediately like the goalposts move. And like, now I'm going after this. And, and some of that is just natural if you're just on a path, maybe a growth path, but the focus and maybe the obsession to it. What's, what are some of the problems, do you think? If we approach work with this specific envy of our neighbor, what are some of the problems? We've talked about a few of them, that you're setting yourself up for a never-ending. You're going to be, it's insatiable, right? You can never attain it. Any other problems with this model? I'm on the way. I, I was just going okay. oh. I, I to say uh, on the prior point, um, the more we work for things here on this earth, the less it's taking us away from studying and working for God. So we can work, work, work to try to have something here. But the main thing is it's taking away from what we should be doing. Yeah. I mean, that he's he's spoken to that a little bit as well, that... We work to accumulate all these things. These things don't last. And if we are focused on these things, what we'll get from our work under the sun, the physical realm, our focus is not where? On, on higher realms, absolutely. Yes, Eric. Better. 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 Better
battery left in this. But you after. got it. Shots. All right. So to put work in perspective, we are to work as though we are working for God, right? So it's not, if we, if we put it in the perspective of, okay, it's just me for my work, then all of my emotions and this competition and these other things are going to get in the way. If we realize we're to work hard, whatever that job is, and it may not be the perfect situation, many times it's not, but the work that we have been blessed with, we're doing for God. And so as long as we keep the perspective of everything that we have, we are just stewards of, then it keeps everything else where it should be for us spiritually, not just, oh, I'm having to work this hard job here in this world. Absolutely. You use the word um, competition as well, which I kind of want to key on. In a competition... We like competition, like recreationally, like we love sports in this country, right? There's a million different sports. There's one for everybody. And usually there's teams. I guess there's sports that you don't have a team. You got your tennis, where it's just you and, and the other person. But think about a team. The people on the other team, like, are, are they your, would you say, these are my teammates over here on the other team? No, like your teammates are on your team, right? Like those people are your rivals, and, and, you know, those people are aggressors against your goal. And if, our, if our, we're dominated by competition and by envy about what other people have and catching up to them, how, how long before we don't have neighbors anymore? We just have a whole world of rivals that, like, we are against everyone. They, are, they represent my enemy. They represent something to be overcome, not someone to help not someone who might be being oppressed in some way that I could maybe give comfort to, but they've just become like a hurdle to get over or a challenge to win. And so this can really damage our relationships in a big way because people stop being people to us. They are just like a benchmark that we need to pass. They are, I mean, I think the word rival is really what we can transform people into. Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. That, that's very Solomon. That's like a great little proverb, right? You could just drop that in the middle of Proverbs and it would feel right at home there, right? Um, probably because he says similar things in Proverbs, right? Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. Proverbs 15 and then 16 as well, those two verses. So bringing it back to who are we working for? What is the purpose of our work? Is it just to amass things? Is it to outdo the Joneses? Or is it to glorify God, to work for him, to be excellent for him, and then to enjoy the blessings he gives us for our work? You know, that's kind of suppose, I think, in the passage in chapter 3, that when man is doing good work, doing what he should, then it's good to enjoy the labors. If, if man is working in this way with the envy of his neighbor on his mind and he's just amassing wealth, I think we'd say it's not good for you to enjoy that wealth you're amassing because that is not the point of what was being said before. Let's go a little bit. Verse 5 and 6 give the proper wisdom of response to the crookedness of verse 4. I think we just talked about that. 
Perfect. Let's go to, to verse 7. 7 through 12, what exactly is there about this person's actions that are foolish? Listen to this person and tell me what's foolish about this. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who's left alone when he falls. He has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So this man, what exactly is there that's so foolish about what he's doing. In your own words, as Solomon's given us his words, and maybe I'll add, not on the screen, do you think we're susceptible to this today? I think it's one of the things we read it and we're like, that makes sense to me. Like, I'm not struggling with this one. I'm tracking with you well, preacher. But are we still susceptible to this today? I got one other question after you guys answer that one well. What makes us susceptible to this today, if you think we are susceptible to this today? That's true. People have not changed. We're establishing that well in this book, that we, everything's been done. There's nothing new. We do the same things these others have done. But why is it when we know, like we read this and we're like, that is, that makes total sense. You need to have somebody with you. You're like two is better than one. Yes, but then why then do we go out, you know, next week and find ourselves not really following this or heeding this? Well, you can look at this thinking in two different ways. One from the, the, the physical, non-spiritual sense as of just like what's clearly stated out here in the verses but then you look at it from a spiritual sense. If we try to go in this world alone without God, then we're, Satan's going to chew us up and spit us out. And, and then one, if we try to go with, in this life without our spiritual brethren, two, we will fall guilt. We will fall to other things in this world as well. Good. Do you do you think Solomon? This is just a thought question because there's, there's no way to know. It doesn't tell us in the, in the scripture here, in the passage. Is Solomon talking about a particular person here when you read this? Do you think that's possible? You know, he said, I saw oppressions that are happening to all these people, and I see all these people working hard. He said, and then I saw one person. Let me describe this person to you. Um, we probably don't have time to dwell on that long, and you might be like, we don't want to dwell on it at all. Let's keep it moving. Um, I, I'm toying with the idea personally that Solomon might be reflecting a little bit about himself in this passage here. That this could be kind of the weird opposite of Paul when he's like, I know of a person who was caught up into the heavens and saw these amazing things, and we're like, that's you, right, Paul? Probably is what we believe to be. Um, I wonder if Solomon is having some reflection potentially in his life at some of the choices he has made, at the choices that he 
without others, just continue to chase after these pleasures and to continue to do these things. Uh, he's never, his eyes were never satisfied. He kept pursuing. He, there's a time in his life when he fits this description incredibly well and could speak accurately, coming out of it perhaps, about how vain that was and that how maybe he would have done that differently. And interesting, it, you know, I just, I think that's interesting. That's all we have time to say about that. I want to push a little bit forward. We've talked a little bit about the benefits of companionship. He explains that as well. This is kind of the closing portion here. These two kings, right? Uh, in this final passage, we've got 13 through 16. Let's read it quickly. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all whom, whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after the wind. So tell me about one of these two individuals, the young, destitute kind of man, and then the old, foolish king. What lessons are you grabbing out of this as we're kind of bringing our class to a close here? One key, key lesson is you know, the point of reaching a point in your life where you do not you know, receive instruction. And you think about Solomon's journey, and perhaps the times in his life that and he wasn't receiving the instruction that he should have received, and he, there's consequences that come with that. Yeah, absolutely. Consequences. I think if we can offer a closing thought here as we're getting ready for the classes to come in. Consequences, right, in this passage. You have uh, this young man, though he was in prison, which I don't think that's implying that he was being punished, but he's just, he was in the worst possible state. The, the least likely person to become king is a prisoner, right? He's not even allowed to make his own decisions. He's definitely not going to decide what you can do. Um, and yet, he is wise, and his circumstances change. And you have the established king, who's the king. No one gets to tell the king what to do, but he is foolish, and his circumstances will change. He is not irreplaceable. He is not beyond being corrected. He's not beyond being removed. And so, yeah, there are consequences, sometimes good, when we act with wisdom. Though we are in a bad situation, when we act with wisdom and do what is good, there are positive outcomes often. And though we might be king, and we've been king for a long time, everybody knows we're king, acting foolishly, even he is not replaceable and not beyond consequences, I think, there. That is really our full time. I really appreciate everyone participating. So great. Uh, we'll just have a few moments break, and then we'll continue with our, our portion tonight. Thank you.